Tonight, God's Word comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to be reading the first 17 verses of this chapter, our focus tonight on verses 10 through 17. First Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's Word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, last week we started our study of this Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. You recall we talked about how he had written them earlier. This is the first letter we have in Scripture, but Paul's second letter to them. And he writes them as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He writes them with authority to a church in this Corinthian culture, to a church where the world was closing in on them and began to infect the church. This was a church that Paul knew very, very well. Paul had founded this church on his second missionary journey. He had much contact with them, the various letters sent back and forth, and those from Chloe's house now had reported to him as well. 
And so Paul, throughout this letter, is going to respond to difficulties, to problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. They were being divided over a number of issues. But before he does that, before he gets into addressing them and, and, and urging them, he thanks God for them. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Yes, it was a church with problems. Yes, it was a church with troubles. But Paul thanks God for the church. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is thankful to God. He is recognizing God's faithfulness. In spite of the church's sin, God will hold on to the church, and they will remain his. Paul then begins, in verse 10, to make his appeal to the church. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you must be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's going to deal with divisions that were taking place within the congregation. And if we think honestly about the history of the Christian church, the church has a history of divisions. We can think back to the year 1054 when there was what was called the Great Schism in the church, a division between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. We can think of the Protestant Reformation when those Protestant churches divided, separated from the Roman Church. We think of the history of the Dutch Reformed tradition and dates like 1834 and the Offskiting. Dates like 1886, the Dolianzi, divisions in the church. We perhaps think of our own more recent history, 1924, the beginning of the Protestant Reformed churches, another division in the church, and more recently, 1995, with the formation of the United Reformed Churches in North America. The history of the church is a history of division. Now, can someone come to us and take a verse like verse 10 and say that all of that was wrong? After all, Paul says here, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. We must be very careful not to over-exegete this text tonight and make it say more than Paul intended it to say. There are times when divisions are allowable in the church. There are times when divisions are necessary in the church. And there are times when it is more important not to divide and to remain united. This is what we're going to look at as we enter into Paul's appeal to the church that they have no divisions among them. There are times, as I said, when simply for practical reasons, the church is allowed to divide. Uh, if, uh, if God 
should do a miraculous work here in Chino. And suddenly, our congregation was double its current size. But we'd certainly say, we need to start another church. There's too many of us to fit into one room. That's just a very practical reason. There's no theological principle involved. And in circumstances like that, it's okay for there to be a division, a splitting of the church. Now, that might seem fairly obvious, but there are those voices within the Reformed churches that would disagree. They would say, no, in one locality, there should only be one church. No matter how big it gets, in one locality, one church. We would say, no, it's okay for just very practical matters for the church to divide and there be more than one in one place. There are times the church should not divide. When we have differences of opinion, not on any central theological point, that's not an opinion, that's a fact, the truth of Scripture, but differences on things like um, how many psalms should we sing versus how many hymns should we sing. Should we sing with the organ? Should we sing with the piano? These are, these are matters of opinion. And it's okay for us to disagree about those. It's okay for us not to all be of one mind, but we certainly should not divide over these lesser matters. We must never let the lesser matters be that which causes division. What color should the carpet be? I've heard of churches that have great discussions over what color the carpet should be. And if it's that color, I'm leaving the church. We should never let these lesser matters divide us. We have the freedom to disagree with each other on these lesser matters and remain within the same church. In fact, I can't imagine any church on which every person agrees about absolutely everything. Our fallen, sinful nature just simply won't allow that. So, it's okay that we may not all see eye to eye on everything, on these secondary, these lesser matters. We should not divide over them. There are times when we are required to divide the church and required to separate. Again, we think of a time like the Protestant Reformation, when the church at the time was no longer exhibiting the marks of the church. The true gospel not being preached. The sacraments not being properly administered. Church discipline not being done. When the church no longer is the church, it is necessary for us to divide from that. It is necessary that there be a split within that group. And then, and then there are the last group where I would simply say, for the welfare of the church, it is permissible to divide, even though the differences are regarding theology. There are some theological points which are very significant 
but upon which Christians disagree. I think of my time spent in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and my closest colleagues there, my closest colleagues were a group of Reformed Baptist ministers. Now, we disagree on some fundamental issues. The nature of the covenant. What baptism is. And yet, although we could not be in the same church together for the welfare of the church, that simply wouldn't work. Neither of us declared the others to be heretics. There are significant matters on which we disagree And we say that for the welfare of the body, we cannot be in the same body, but we don't declare them to be a false church. We don't declare them to be heretics and preaching heresy. Paul, what is he talking about in verse 10? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is going to press for a necessary unity in the church. We have to remember, Paul is writing this letter to one congregation. He is not writing to churches in general. We have some what we call general epistles in the New Testament that were sent to a variety of churches. That's not the case here. Paul is writing to one church and addressing issues within that one body. And he says, in this body, in this Corinthian church, there should be no divisions. They were divided. And they were claiming different leaders as kind of the the, the head of their group. Paul says in verse 11, It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Or, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They would appeal to a name. I follow Paul, the founder of the church, the one with whom they've had correspondence. I follow Paul. Or, I follow Apollos, a well-learned teacher from Alexandria. I follow his teaching. Or, I follow Cephas. That's, That's Peter, children. I follow Peter. Peter, the rock on whom the New Testament church is built. I follow Peter. Or some, I follow Christ. The church was divided and divided along the lines of leadership, personality, credentials that these men may have had. And it's a reminder to us that the unity in the church does not come by the church following any particular man. The unity in the church comes from following Christ. God does not ever entrust His church into any one man's hands except Jesus Christ. Even today, when we have the eldership exercising Christ's rule, it is a plurality of elders. There are a number of them. God never entrusts his church into any one man's hands, except the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
And some were trying to claim that was their leader. I follow Christ. That sounds wonderful. That sounds pious. There are some churches today that use that same type of reasoning. Oh, we, we don't follow uh, human writings. You, you reform people, you've got creeds and you've got confessions. We follow Christ. We have no creed but Christ. Maybe you've heard that. No creed but Christ. It sounds pious. I was listening to a lecture not so long ago, someone addressing that particular point, I have no creed but Christ. And he said, how arrogant. How arrogant to think that we can ignore the work of God throughout history. Yes, Christ is the foundation of the church. But God has continued to grow that church. To simply say, I follow Christ and ignore what God has done down through history, it's an empty piety. We may not ignore church history, the way God has directed and held on to his people. We have the ecumenical creeds, those confessions of God as a triune God. We have the reformed confessions. These are gifts to the church. Are they on the level of Scripture? Of course they are not. No one would claim that they are. But they are, they are gifts of God when he has called particularly gifted men to craft these things, to help us in our walk with God. We have a wonderful spiritual legacy that unites us with the church of all ages, the truly Catholic church, a church of all times, a church of all places. Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? That must have hurt Paul to write that. To even pen those words, was I crucified for you? Jesus Christ is the only one who could pay for our sins. Was I crucified for you? Or were you baptized into my name? No, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius and his household of Stephanus. No, no, he says, it is Christ and Christ alone who is the king and head of the church. It is in him and him alone that we find our unity. We may disagree on the lesser matters, but on Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, that is where our unity must be found for the Corinthian church, for our church as well. Paul then concludes this section with some striking words. He says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We're going to talk about the second half of that verse next week. That leads into the, second, the next section of the letter. Focusing tonight on the first half of that verse, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul's singular passion Paul's desire was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching, the preaching of the gospel, is that which sets the Christian church off from every other institution. 
There are those who want the, the church to be something of a social club. Oh, we gather together and we listen to somebody speak and we sing our songs and we get together and have coffee. The church is a social group. There are those who want the church to be an agent of social relief. Oh, we can uh, build uh, hospitals and schools and we can help people who are poor and all these things. They're not bad things. But they must never be pursued at the expense of the preaching of the gospel. That is the the fundamental mission of the church, to declare Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And it is so easy for us to become distracted and to want other things beside preaching. In fact, Paul is, is just, I'm amazed at these words. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. Even more important than baptism. Baptism, that entrance sacrament. Now, certainly there's a connection between preaching and baptism. When the gospel is proclaimed and God opens a heart, then that person is baptized. But preaching comes first. That was the priority for Paul. God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach. Preaching must remain the distinguishing mark and the central focus of the church. It must not be displaced with other things. We so easily become, like I said, distracted. And we want something else. Preaching is God's appointed means for growing His church. I was talking with someone recently about our evening service, and they said, well, what do you do at your evening service? I said, well, it's pretty much like our morning service. We gather, we sing, we pray, preaching of the Word. And they were trying to convince me that if we did something more exciting, if we did something more trendy, Maybe if we had small groups, maybe if we had uh, special choirs come in or things, then we'd get more attendance at the evening service. But preaching is God's appointed means to grow the church. The preaching of the gospel is that which God will use in his time and in his way. And so we must always look for and demand nothing less and the preaching of the gospel every time the congregation is called together to worship. The elders are, are careful to oversee the ministry of the word, that the gospel goes forth Lord's Day after Lord's Day, in the morning service, in the evening service. That it's not simply uh, someone's opinion, this is what I might think about this text, but the gospel is heard. Jesus Christ is central. We had our church visitors here just this past week, and one of the questions they ask is, are the ministers of the Word giving evidence of diligent study before they bring the Word of God to the people? Preaching is the power of God. And the elders must be careful to guard the pulpit, no matter who is in it. And as congregation, you must never accept anything less than the glorious truth of the gospel. Well, there's lots of other things we could do, other trendy things, but, but preaching, that's what Paul's passion was. Like I said, it's so easy for us to get bored with the regular, to get bored with, oh, another sermon again. But every time the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus Christ is proclaimed, the gates of heaven are opened 
as the Spirit chooses to use that preaching where Christ is preeminent. Now, preaching will be certainly declared in weakness, but it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. A church united around that fundamental mission, preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified, will be able to deal with these other matters, these factional matters, because that is the passion that we all have that Jesus Christ be seen as preeminent, that his glory be seen more fully, and that Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the gospel call go out. That call goes out, against one, goes out again once again tonight. Jesus Christ came as a sinner's Savior. If you have never embraced him, then tonight is the night to bow the knee before him to recognize your fallenness, your sinfulness. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus Christ is a completely sufficient Savior. He has done everything necessary to secure your salvation. All you need to do is believe that. Put your faith in Him. Put your trust in Him. And know the glory of belonging to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that one great, glorious church spans all times and all places. Our hearts are prone to unbiblical division. So I pray that God might keep us focused, focused upon Him, focused upon His Word, focused upon His Son, Jesus Christ, that there be no division in the church. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we praise you for the work of your Son. We praise you that you are a faithful God, and we have been called into fellowship with your Son because of your faithfulness. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us the ministry of the Word and the preaching of the Gospel. If we are tempted, Lord, to become bored, to become dissatisfied, to want something more exciting and more relevant, please forgive us. And Lord God, we pray that your gospel might never be silent from this pulpit, but that every Lord's Day morning and every Lord's Day evening, our attention is directed once again to Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, the one who is the king and the head of his church. Hear our prayer, O oh God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.